Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Said we'll be in Second uh, Samuel chapter 22, and we're in the last portion of Second Samuel, and it, it seems like this hodgepodge of stories and, and poems and songs all put together, mashed together, and you know, lots of people have tried to explain why it's here. Uh, but all of these six parts are tied together and, and they form a good literary unit of uh, looking at them paired together. Saul's sin to, to, to the opening, David's sin in, at the end, the, the war with the Philistines where we see this memorial with other people uh, lifted up as David can't go into battle. But then David's mighty men in the beginning of chapter 20, uh, at the end of chapter 23 and in the middle of these six portions is two uh, songs or poems in which David writes his last words in the first half of uh, chapter 23. And what we'll look at half of tonight is uh, David's song or psalm that he wrote. And uh, here it is. And it's not this all these uh, just random stories, they're all tied together, forming this unit of this close. What's David's kingdom look like? What David's, what is David's kingdom going to look like after he passes away? What's the difference between Saul's kingdom when it started and David's kingdom when it's ended? But broader than that, we're also seeing these tied in with ends, and specifically tonight, even going back all the way to 1 Samuel. So in the middle, we have these two songs or poems. Now, and we're trying to understand what, have, what is all the point of these six things together? What's the, what's the driving factor that we see? What good do they serve? These random lists of mighty men that were given this memorial about what happened uh, to the giants in Gath, the, the Gibeonites and that story of Saul, all these things. Why are they here? Why do we have them at the end of Second Samuel? Now, specifically with this chapter, chapter 22, it's, it's almost word for word Psalm 18. You turn to Psalm 18 and you read through Psalm 18 and you turn to 2 Samuel chapter uh, 22. And I don't think he, if you read through it, you would know uh, unless you really contrasted them side by side, the differences. Now, you could spend tonight looking at all the differences. Where, where is Psalm uh, um, Second Samuel chapter 22, unique from Psalm 18. Uh, now, people have tried to study the differences and tried to work out what the differences are. Uh, some have tried to understand and, and come down on trying to understand when was each written. Was Psalm 2018 written first or um, what about Second Samuel chapter 22? How do they fit together? So some have suggested that one is after the death of Saul, he writes this psalm, uh, or 2 Samuel chapter 22, and the other is later in his life, he goes back and he refreshes, he looks at this again and does it. Some have put it more in a liturgical category in Psalm 18, and um, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 22 is more a personal diary entry. Now, there's many formulas out there, we're not told why there are different uh, psalms, what the differences mean. Now, I tend to lean towards more the psalm is liturgical, written for common consumption of singing in uh, corporate worship and Second uh, Samuel chapter uh, 22, although it's very similar, is more personal. Now, you can 
again, we're not told. And the, the main reason I come to that conclusion is not about the content of each one. It's about the location of each one. That we're given psalms and psalm. And although this, I think, is a psalm, I'm not going to call this a psalm because it's, I'm going to call it a song to try and separate them. We're given 150 psalms. But there's other things, songs that are sung, like the song after Exodus 15 of God delivering his people. So we can spend a lot of time, and, and there's many good reasons to be able to look at these. Why is one different? Why is an, another? But we're going to be specifically looking at Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel chapter 22. So why is 2 Samuel 22 here? Why is this song here in this portion? Now, I love that this song is recorded here. I love it for many different reasons. One of the reasons I love it is that it's a great example of how we actually get the Psalms. That we, as we've gone through 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, we've stopped at those historical markers that we know of and we've gone and looked at the Psalm. And if you were just to read the historical narrative, you don't get the, the same glimpse as you do as David writing and penning a Psalm as he's is in, a, in a cave praying. We get a, a different glimpse, a different angle of this. It adds to it. But also we get to understand the Psalms and can dive deeper into the Psalms or the song. And this shows us that, that these, songs are written, these songs and Psalms are written by real people. They're written at someone at some point in history. So they're not just merely just fallen out of the sky, but they're written by a specific person at a specific time, generally talking about a specific thing. So we know that David wrote a lot of the Psalms, 75 of them, but here we get to get, have a glimpse of where they come from. Secondly, I think why this song is here is that we see that the Psalms were actually known by people. That you, you're looking at this, it's not just something that's dug up, that someone was going through the temple years later and said, hey, I found all these song sheets or these psalms. They're actually common to, to the day and the era, the time of when David lived. You know, Second uh, Samuel, first and Second Samuel, I believe, is written by Samuel, Gad, and Nathan, who wrote this port, portion of the Second Samuel. We don't know for sure. My assumption is that most of this is it was put together by Nathan. Nathan was a prophet later. Gad was also there as well. Um, so Gad or Nathan compiled these together. But they had access to David's Psalms. They had access to his writings that they might be able to know that the Psalms aren't just something centuries later. The Psalms are something that are sung around this time, known around this time, that Psalms are... are collectively growing during this portion of time. So we think that helps us, again, to be able to understand the history of it, that whoever put together the Psalter, Psalm 18, also had 2 Samuel chapter 22, or vice versa. Thirdly, I think it helps us understand the historical narrative. When you read historical narrative, as we have been doing in First and Second Samuel, we've, we've jumped to other psalms to be able to understand that. Again, understand what's going through David's mind when he's fleeing from Saul, when the people knock on his door trying to get him, after he, he hears about uh, the Edomite who um, strikes them down, the, the, the priests in the temple. 
But you also get this second glimpse of what's happening behind the scenes. Now, we've pointed as we've studied that we see these chapters which seem godless, that God is not mentioned. But you get a, a, a slither of what is, God is doing behind the scenes. Right at the end of Second Samuel chapter 11, God is not mentioned within all that chapter until the very last verse. That the things that David did displeased the Lord. So the narrator has inserted something that we get to understand about this chapter. David's actions displeased the Lord. And so too now, in a broad step back, we get to see how God has been working throughout all the whole time. Now, hopefully we've pointed that out as we've gone through, but it gives us another angle to be able to look at. So there's chapters where God might not be mentioned at all, or he's not the center. But here, as we read this um, song, we see. Second Samuel shows us how David understood what had happened. Not just the narration of what was going about and what happened. That he knows who God is. He knows what God does and how he is working. Again, we see that David is this true historical person, a true believer, going through all of these events. We see things that we haven't seen before. And this is all done through faith, as the author of Hebrews explains. Now, not all of these are talking about uh, David, but he says in verse 33, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions. Quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign enemies to flight. Now you read through Second uh, Samuel chapter 22 and you see all of these things. And the author of Hebrews looks back and says these were done through faith. And here we see a part of David's faith as he goes through some of those things. But fourthly, this song is here that we see David records God's answers to his prayers. As we've gone through First and Second Samuel, as we've turned back to Psalms, a lot of the Psalms are him in a desperate uh, place or situation where he cries out for God to be able to help him. Some of them are desperate where he finds that he doesn't know what tomorrow is going to bring. Others, he knows that God will rescue him through it. But here, it's not so much him asking God to do something. He's looking back and reflecting on God, how, how he has answered his prayers. The most of the Psalms that we've looked at, those historical Psalms, are, are when he's been chased, surrounded, and crying out for salvation. But here, David then reflects and writes this song of praise, or this psalm of praise, after God has delivered him. And I think sometimes we fail to do this too. We have a long list of prayers that we have, that we would like God to be able to answer. But how often we then move to that second category of God answered prayers, how short that list is, not because God hasn't answered them, but we don't spend the time to be able to reflect on how God has answered them. We don't see how they've been answered. A great example of how God's people are called to be people who remember what God has done, how he has delivered them. This is exactly what happened after they crossed the Red Sea. Moses writes the great song of deliverance. Miriam also has a song there as well. But it's also not just seeing David's 
prayers answered. It's also an answer to Hannah's prayer. Now, we looked at this way back in July of 2020. Maybe a great time for you to be able to go back, reread uh, 1 Samuel chapter 2 in Hannah's prayer in the first 10 verses. And we could even spend a whole night, even a couple of nights, going and comparing and contrasting Hannah's prayer to this prayer here. But I just want to point out one main factor, and that is that Hannah's prayer really focuses on what God will do. David's prayer focuses on what God has done. So even if you listen to the list I'm about to go to, you see the overlap of what you see in 2 Samuel chapter 22. Again, a great study that we don't have time to be able to do. But he, he sits there that in Hannah's prayer, he says that he makes a lie. He raises from the dust. He lifts up the ash heap. He exalts. He causes people to inherit a throne. He seats people with princes. He sends wealth. He, he guards. He gives strength. He raises up from the grave. In contrast, he also sends poverty. He humbles. He will thunder. He will judge. He br- bring death. He brings down to the grave. So you hear, you see, all of these things that God will be doing, and David now has these overlap. And also, if you see 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel's literary units that are be to read together, you see this middle, David starting as king in 2 Samuel, really is in the beginning of his kingship. He's anointed way back in 1 Samuel chapter 16 that these are two go together. So on the first end, you have Hannah's prayer. On the second end... Uh, the second half, you see the end of David's prayer. David's answered song. So I think there's four reasons why we have this here in Second Samuel chapter 22 compared to not just having Psalm 18. I think it's a great encouragement, I think, for us also to be able to reflect on that Hannah's prayer that she prayed wasn't seen to be answered until David came yes. to the throne, and even, you might even say, until Christ came. So here Hannah is, she prays, she passes away, she dies, but yet God still answers her prayer even long after she's prayed the prayer. That we see God continue to answer prayer long after the person has gone to be with him. So then the question arises, how do we divide up Second uh, Samuel chapter 22? How do you divide this song up to be able to look at it, to be able to understand it? Do you go with themes? Do you go with big sections? Do you contrast it with Hannah's prayer, like I said before? Do you go line by line and unpack it? And I, you could almost spend a whole night talking about the, the values of each of these lessons, but let me explain how I have decided to be able to break it up. So there's 51 verses, and uh, I'll stop at verse 26, roughly about halfway. We'll spend this time looking at the first half, and then next week we'll look at the other half. But I think how I've decided to focus this comes down to what we're given in the first uh, verse. And that is that David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So here we're given two major categories that David spoke it to the Lord, the words of this song. So the first is that this is a song of praise towards God that David is lifting up and praising God for what he has done. The second part 
is when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. The second part focuses on God's deliverance of David. So they're both closely connected, so it's hard to be able to divide those two categories up. David is praising God for his deliverance, but he's also mentioning how God delivered it. So you you might be able to put it another way. Who God is to David and what God has done for David. There's a person that I found that uh, helps me divide it up using those kind of two categories. And that kind of be our focus as we go through. There's things that are spoken to God. David's relationship with God. And the second is things that are spoken about God. What God has done. And this person divides it up into 14 parts where he focuses on what's spoken to God and then spoken about God. And his, his center of how he did that was following the, the, the covenant-keeping name of Yahweh and seeing how that connects. So a lot of these things overlap, and lots of people might have just two, div- two divides. They might look at it per theme. They might look at it in chunks of four. You know, there's many ways to be able to divide a big passage like this. I'm going to follow this pattern, and you'll see there's many overlap. But these four parts, these these 14 parts, 18 of them are spoken about God, uh, spoken uh, about God, and then two of them are uh, six of them are spoken to God. Now we're going to focus on the first seven parts this week, and then the next seven parts. Um, so that's the parts there. So let me uh, read this passage for us, and then we'll go through this section. Um, part by part. But let me read Second uh, Samuel verse uh, chapter 22, verses 1 to 26. And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. He said, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my rock, uh, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, to save me from violence. I call upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. For the waves of death encompass me, the torrents of destruction assailed me, the cords of Sheol entangled me, the snares of death confronted me. In my distress I called to the Lord, to my God I called. From His temple He heard my voice. And my cry came to his ears. Then the earth reeled and rocked. The foundations of the heavens trembled and quaked because he was angry. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Glowing coals flamed forth from him. He bowed the heavens and came down. Thick darkness was under his feet. He rode on a cherub and flew. He was seen on the wings of the wind. He made the darkness around his around him his canopy, thick clouds, a gathering of water out of the brightness. Before him coals of fire flamed forth. The Lord thundered from heaven. The Most High uttered his voice, and he sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning and routed them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundation of the world were laid bare at the rebuke of the Lord. At the blast of the breath of his nostrils, he sent from on high. He took me. He drew me out of many waters. 
You rescued me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me, for though they were too mighty for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity, but the Lord was my support. He brought me out into a broad place. He rescued me because he delighted in me. The Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me, for I have kept the ways of the Lord, and I have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his rules were before me, and from his statutes I did not turn aside. I was blameless before him, and I kept myself from guilt. And the Lord was, has rewarded me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanliness in his sight. We'll stop there in verse 25. So how do you break this up again, looking at these seven parts? The first begins with verses 2 and 3, that they're spoken to God. There's an affirmation of trust in Yahweh as his refuge, as David's refuge. And in these short two verses, David begins this long list of names which he calls God. The Lord is my rock, my fortress, my deliverer, my God, my rock, my shield, my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, my savior. Again, you could spend all your time unpacking all of these truths. Go back and look at how God has been David's rock, his salvation, his God, his deliverer, his fortress, stronghold, refuge throughout all of this time. And I think if you were to do this, you would see these glorious truths of how God works as as David goes through his anointed king under many persecutions. But maybe a few comments before we move on. Consider the life that David has lived up to this point. Most of it is on the run from Saul, living either in foreign countries or in the wilderness. Or, even as he began his kingship, he was at war with a household of Ithbosheth. He, uh, he then was at war with his son Absalom. So you have a long period of time where David is uh, running, fleeing, fighting. And even you think about his military com- career, most of his career probably was spent on the battlefield. It was unlikely that a, a general, a chief, you know, a commander of an army would not be on a battlefield. Um, so you, you have all of these things. You, you could say that you look at David's life, and especially as a whole, and you could say that his life was unstable. Not because he was unstable, not because he was living a wild life, but the whole situations that he finds himself in, that there is not much real consistency of peace during this time. Years of conflict, of difficulties. And they would far outweigh, I think, those years of peace that David saw. However, all of these uncertain times, as David looks back and reflects on his life, he knows one constant throughout all that. That God is his foundation, his firm foundation. Not only is God a steadfast rock, and foundation. But he looks back and, and he sees, not from a distance, that God was his rock and salvation far off. There's a personal aspect to all of these descriptions that he gives to God that he is David's rock, that he is David's salvation. Again, these small words should be great reminders for us. What makes a man or a woman, a man or a woman of faith is 
is not what they do per se, but their understanding of their personal connection to God. To them, God is not some distant being in whom they worship to try and appease. God is not someone who merely created the world and stood back from all creation. But God is someone who is their God. They are His people. It's not that they merely just do these things to to hope that they get good fortune or luck from God. But God is their God. And they are His. A glorious aspect to the Christian life is to able reflect and rest upon this truth. That it's not merely that Jesus died for sinners. He died for a sinner like me. He died for my sins. That glorious truth. That union to Christ. Not only is God a rock, but He is my rock, my foundation, my refuge, my salvation, my shield. And David, looking back on his life, is able to say this of who God is. The second part is, verses 4 to 6, spoken about God, praise to Yahweh for deliverance from enemies. Again, David looks back on his life and considers the many times he's surrounded by death. Life as a king is not a pleasant one, especially in times of war. Again, kings often were ones that fought in battles. What did the Israelites say in chapter 8? We want a king like other nations who will come and fight our battles. A king wasn't one of merely just luxury. The David, he slept in caves in foreign lands. And he thinks of those times he had prayed. Maybe in between battles as he takes rest that evening. Or maybe in the midst of battles. Have this image given to us by David that he paints in four different ways. In verses 5 and 6. Basically being surrounded by death, destruction, shield. All of these things confronting him, assailing him, entangling him. This image of of a person that that is drowning in the sea. And that sea is not the waves of the ocean, but death. I've made this comment a few times, but how often do we really think about it? How I would love to be like David. How I would love to be like David. And we think of him as watching his sheep, sitting on his throne. But here in these verses, we see a glimpse of his life and his life. And he says, moments in my life, I have been surrounded by death. This image of David now standing there with his blood-covered sword. People coming to attack him. Weary from battle. And he cries out for God for salvation. But notice what he says before this in verses 5 and 6 when he says in verse 4. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised. And I am saved from my enemies. He later speaks of being surrounded by death, been entangled, destruction, confronted, 
all of these things. And what does he say about God? He says, I call to the Lord, upon the Lord, who is worthy to be praised. A great challenge again for us as well. Do we have this mindset that we can praise God when we're surrounded by death? In the midst of a battlefield, in the midst of all that we see. And here he is, he's calling to the Lord who is worthy to be praised. Even praise is on his lips when he's crying out and death surrounds him. The third part, verses 9 and 10, is spoken about God. Yahweh's anger was evident on the earth. Now, in contrast, the believers, we can have difficult lives. We can have terrible days. But also I want you to see to the extent which God works to be able to answer his prayer. In verse 7, he explains that in my distress, I called upon the Lord. Again, echoing back to that verse 4. To my God, I called. Again, that reference to that personal God that he's talking to in the midst of all this battle. From his temple, he heard my voice and my cry came to his ears. And here David is surrounded by death. And yet, as he cries out, God is the one who hears him. Not only he hears him, he answers his prayer. Again, I've been spoken about this before, but always could be reminded that we have a God who hears our prayers, but also answers our prayers. When we pray to God, we, we come before the throne, before through Christ our mediator, and we come before God the Father and we lay our desires before Him. And He hears them. He hears them to the point where He answers them as well. In the next few parts, although I think they can be seen together, we'll kind of quickly go through them. But show us all the power of God, the extent of which God uses to be able to answer David's prayer. Del Ralph Davis explains that the world became unglued. Is the image that we have here. Chaos. Then he goes on to say, now exactly. Not exactly what we usually expect from that sweet hour of prayer. Here David's prayers of crying out for salvation and God says, I answered them. But what we see here is that God comes, God enters in to be able to save David from all these unlikely snares of death that surround him. In verse 10 he says that he came down, thick darkness was under his feet. That God enters into creation to be able to save David. God uses his sovereign power to be able to preserve his saint. Again, those, all these parts kind of flow together. Part 4, verses 10 to 13, spoken about God. Yahweh displayed His power in nature. Now we see this, this power shown to be able to, to... How God delivered David. Now this, as we read through this, should, should bring up another image in our mind. That is, just as the Israelites had been freed and delivered from the hand of Pharaoh, they come and stand before Mount Sinai. And God comes down 
into creation. The world becomes unglued, as Dale Ralph Davids said. There's clouds, lightning, thunder, earthquakes. All of these things are spoken about in these chapters, in these verses. See that in part 5, that he thundered from heaven and shot arrows. In part 6, reaching from on high, Yahweh delivered me. You see, the extent of what God did to be able to save his anointed. Now we can see the connections to Exodus. We can see the connections to answered prayer to Hannah. But also we can see glimpses of another time in the future. When God unglued the world. Think of all those things that we've mentioned in this time. Darkness, lightning, thunder. That's what it says in Matthew chapter 27, starting in verse 41. And also the chief priests and the scribes and the elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires him. For he said, I am the Son of God. Now the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemak sapakthani. That is my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, he, This man is calling Elijah. And one uh, and them at once ran and took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were also opened. And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. See again this connection of of God coming down to be able to save his anointed king. Death encompasses him, surrounds him. And yet he is delivered. You see too, Jesus, the anointed king, the one whom David's true greater son comes. And God steps in to be able to save him. This judgment of spoken about of all the flames and things. In Psalm 2 where it says, Kiss the son lest he be angry. And you perish in the way and his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. And here David is taking refuge in God. Surrounded by death. Peter in Acts chapter 2 says, God raised him up loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. But the final part that we'll look at tonight is part 7, verses 21 to 25. Spoken about God. He treated me according to my righteousness. Lastly, David turns to his actions and how God deals with him. Now, this is why some people believe that it's merely just after when Saul died, when David becomes king in the opening chapters of 2 Samuel, chapter, um, 2 Samuel, that they believe that this is why it did. Because he, he says, 
quite clearly that in verse 21, the Lord dealt with me according to my righteousness, according to the cleanness, uh, cleanness of my hands. He rewarded me. But how different that then sounds from Psalm 51. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgression. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from all sin. On one hand, he's saying, I'm clean. Another time, he's saying, clean me, Lord. Again, Dale Ruff Davis has a humorous way of being able to ask and put together these string of questions. As David in verses 21 to 25, dragging in a Santa Claus theology of works righteousness. Does he claim too much for himself? Has he become blind to his sinfulness? Or do these things reflect a self-righteous attitude and a weakness? Weakening, weakening of the sense of sin. These verses baffle thoughtful believers. How can David, who had Uriah's blood on his hands and Uriah's wife in his bed, even dream of saying anything like this that we find in verses 21 and 25? Mm. But David later goes on to explain that the Hebrew term that he uses here, ta'im, does not connote sinfulness, but wholeness, completeness, integrity. It's not that David has says, I have never sinned. That he, He's not saying he's never sinned particularly. But if you look at his life as a whole, his wholeheartedness is life's commitment. You might be able to say that A married couple has been faithful to one another for years. But if you were really to go in and and dig or ask questions, probably wouldn't take that, that long, you'd find out that they weren't truly faithful and honored each other as they might have first committed in their wedding vows. It's not that they did great abhorrent sins, but they let each other down. They failed each other. But as a whole, you would see their faithfulness and commitment to one another, not necessarily their specific sins. So to what I think here you see here is is David is speaking generally as a whole. He's not claiming to be perfect, that he lived a life of perfection. But what he's saying here is is that he, he has his whole life, if you look at his whole life, he's lived a life devoted for God. And you even see that in Psalm 51, right? That his devotedness is not just claiming that he never sinned, but when he sins, he goes to God for salvation. But I think you also see this lack of what, what you read about in the Psalms. There are Psalms where we see that, that David is not perfect. That, that we read through Second Samuel and we know we're looking and we're longing for someone who we would want to sit on David's throne forever. That we know that Psalm 18 and and 2 Samuel chapter 22 speak of Christ. Not even just some loose connection. David even understood this. Right at the very end in verse 51, he says, The great salvation he brings to his king. He shows steadfast love to his anointed, to David and his offspring forever. Now here David even understands that God brings the salvation that he talks about 
this horn of salvation he brings to David, but also David's offspring. This great salvation. He doesn't just see it as merely as a psalm speaking of him. But his king, whoever is on the throne, God will deliver him as we saw in Matthew chapter 27. They're crying out, will God deliver him? Well, who does? God. God delivers him up. He gave him Christ the power to be able to take his life back up again. Although surrounded by death, he conquered this. This great salvation is not merely just fighting battles and making it to the end. This great salvation speaks of that long-lasting King, Jesus Christ, who sits on David's throne forever. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Seven Springs Presbyterian Church. If you want to learn more about us, please find us on Facebook or visit us at sevenspringspresbyterian.com. Seven Springs Presbyterian Church began in 1874 and is a congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America located in Glade Spring, Virginia. Please join us for worship on Sunday at 10 a.m. and 6 p.m. for His glory and His gospel.